one of the things we know about our culture as a whole is that it doesn't recognize a God. Uh, there, there are lots of Christians, of course, in our country, lots of people who do worship God, but as a whole, uh, we know there are a lot of people in our culture, in our country, who don't know God, don't worship God, don't recognize not only the one true God, they don't really recognize any kind of God. And when a culture has no God, someone else has to do all the work. If we deny that there is a God, or pretend like there is not a God, ruling and reigning and judging and working, then all those responsibilities fall on our shoulders. So no wonder so many in our culture are anxious and angry and exhausted, trying to carry burdens we were never meant to. To carry. Now, someone may push back against that and say, well, when people do believe in God, they become lazy, they become apathetic, they become indifferent because they think God is going to do all the work so they don't have to do anything. Well, that may be true of some people, I suppose, but that's not true in the main. God's work does not relieve us of all responsibility or activity. From the beginning, God intended humanity to work under Him, exercising dominion, subduing the earth, working and keeping the garden. In the same way now, we are called to bear witness to the good news of Jesus, the Son of God, who took on flesh, who died on the cross in the place of sinners, who rose for the forgiveness of sins and eternal salvation for everyone who will turn to Him and believe. But the main work is not ours. It is God's. God is the one who saves, not us. At key moments in the book of Acts, we see God working, God intervening, God calling, God sending in order to fulfill His purpose. He has not laid all those responsibilities on His people. He has given us responsibilities, mainly to respond in obedience when He speaks. But the chief work is His. So He is the one who sends the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. He is the one who confronts Saul on the road to Damascus. He is the one who calls Peter to go to the house of Cornelius and preach to the Gentiles. And it is He who poured out the Spirit on those Gentiles while Peter was preaching. Acts 13 says that it was the Holy Spirit who spoke to the church at Antioch and called them to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which he had called him. And it was God who spoke to Paul through a vision, summoning him to go to Macedonia with the gospel. Now, when God poured out the Spirit, the disciples preached. When God spoke to Paul, he listened and obeyed. When God called Peter to go to the house of Cornelius, he went and he preached. And when God called Paul to go to Macedonia, he went. 
They were not inactive, but neither were they running the show. They were simply responding in obedience to the work and word of God. Now we see something similar in an often forgotten episode in Acts chapter 1. So I invite your attention to Acts chapter 1. We're going to look at uh, verse 12 down to verse 26, the rest of Acts chapter 1. I'm going to read this passage for us. And so I want you to be thinking about, as we hear it, as we think through it, where God is at work and how his people are responding. So here's Acts 1, beginning in verse 12. So then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldamah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, when Jesus departed, right, when he ascended into heaven, just before that, he had given his disciples instructions. He had given them a mission or a commission to preach the gospel, right, to bear witness about Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. But he had also told them that it was not time for them to do that yet. He told them in verse 4 that they were to wait. Right? Verse 4 says, While staying with them, he ordered them 
not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. That is the promise of the Holy Spirit. So one of the first things we learn from this passage is that sometimes remembering that God is in control looks like waiting and praying rather than frantically working. Do the disciples know that God is in control? They know that Jesus is at work. They know that they have been given marching orders by Jesus. And yet they also know that they are not to engage in that work until Jesus says it's time. First, they must wait, verse 4 says, and while they wait, they pray. Verse 12 says that they go back to Jerusalem. They are with Jesus on the Mount of Olives, which is just sort of across the valley from Jerusalem. When it says it's a Sabbath day's journey, what that means is it wasn't very far away. Because on the Sabbath, they had limits on how far they were allowed to walk. So they go back to Jerusalem. And it says they they go back into this upper room where they were gathered together. Uh, Luke tells us there were about 120 Disciples there in that upper room, and he lists many of them. And he says in verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. So they were waiting, and while they were waiting, they were praying. And to be waiting and praying is not to be inactive. If you think prayer is passive or easy, just try it for more than two minutes. Right? Prayer is work. Prayer is active. Prayer is hard. Prayer is something we have to engage in, something we have to do, something we even need God's help with. And these people that were gathered in this upper room waiting according to Jesus' instruction, they were waiting actively because they were waiting prayerfully. They didn't just pray once or twice. Luke says they were devoting themselves to prayer. Regularly, repeatedly, they were praying together as they waited for the gift of the Holy Spirit to be poured out. And notice who was there. He lists the disciples, the ones we're familiar with, like Peter, James, and John. The ones we're not as familiar with, like Bartholomew, uh, you know, Simon, the Zealot, Judas, Uh, the son of James. He lists the disciples. He also lists Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was there praying, waiting. Also Jesus' brothers, it tells us. Now think about the significance of that. We know from John chapter 7 that at least at some point during Jesus' ministry, his own brothers did not believe in him. Scripture tells us that quite plainly. And yet here they are now, after Jesus' resurrection, gathered with his followers, praying. No doubt praying in his name. Because Jesus had told his disciples on the night that he was to be betrayed, he told them that it was time for them to ask things of the Father in his name. That's how they were to pray. So no doubt that's how they are praying here. 
And Jesus' own mother and Jesus' brothers have joined with them in waiting according to Jesus' instructions, praying, no doubt, in Jesus' name. Now this example here is instructive for us because sometimes for us too, there is nothing we can do but wait and pray. And sometimes that's a a very frustrating and difficult experience. Um, Sometimes somebody will share something with you that's going on in their life and they'll ask you to pray for them. And you want to pray for them, but you also want to do more. Right? You want to fix it. You want to make it better. You want to intervene. You want to, you want to do something. Right? But prayer is doing something. It doesn't always feel like it to us, right? but it is. And sometimes that's all that we can do is wait and pray. Sometimes there is work that can be done, and we are eager to rush into it. It may even be something good, but we're not yet equipped for it. What can we do? Wait and pray. Waiting, again, does not mean being inactive. Prayer is active. But praying is not the only thing that we can do while we wait. It's part of what we can do. It's one of the chief things we should be doing while we're waiting. But it's not the only thing we can do while we wait. We see that Simon Peter and the rest of the disciples, they were not only praying... Peter, at least in particular, was also listening to what God had said in his word and was eager to act on what God had spoken. And in the midst of that, he teaches us another lesson. Not only is it true that sometimes remembering God is is in control looks like waiting and praying rather than frantically working, it's also true that sometimes... Remembering that God is in control means recognizing that even great evil does not catch God off guard. A lot of times when some terrible tragedy happens in our world, one of the questions that rises to the surface in people's minds is, where was God? Why didn't God do something about this? Well, we can't always answer the question, why didn't God do something about this? Because we don't always know God's plans, God's purposes, God's will in every specific situation. But we do know where God is. He's right where he always is. And we also know that nothing that happens catches him off guard, catches him by surprise. Nothing is allowed to happen outside of his control, even terrible things. He remains in control. Peter teaches us this by reminding us of what happened with Judas. One of the most evil actions in all of human history was the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, one of his own disciples, with a kiss. But it didn't catch Jesus by surprise. It did not catch the Father by surprise. Instead, it fulfilled Scripture. In fact, Jesus himself said in Luke twenty two twenty two, he said, the Son of Man, that's 
the way Jesus often referred to himself. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. See, there's two things going on there at once. One is God knows what's going to happen. God has revealed in advance what is going to happen. But that doesn't remove the person who does that thing of accountability, of guilt, of responsibility. So about Judas, for example, Peter says in verse 16, he says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. This had to happen. Jesus had to be handed over, had to be betrayed. Well, does that mean Judas is off the hook? Because, I mean, he couldn't help it. It had to happen. No, that's not what that means. Judas still made his choices. Judas still acted freely. But Judas also acted in fulfillment of the Scripture, just as God had said. Peter goes on to say that the Holy Spirit spoke this beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So what happened to Judas, Peter says, it fulfilled the scripture. It was necessary. It was prophesied. It was part of God's plan. And yet Judas, in in doing that, committed great evil that he is accountable for. He says... Well, Luke inserts for us in verses 16, or excuse me, 18 and 19 the result of Judas's actions. It tells us how he acquired a field that has become known as the field of blood with the money that he used or that he received for betraying Judas, uh, Jesus, excuse me. Uh, Matthew tells us about this as well in Matthew 27. And Judas had second thoughts. He tried to give the money back. And the chief priest and the elders said, you know, well, that's your money now. We got nothing to do with that. And so he threw it down. He ran off. He hung himself. And the chief priest ended up using that money to buy this field. Uh, again, called the field of blood to this day. He experienced a disturbing death. Jesus said it would have been better for him not to be born. We know the consequences for him were horrible. And yet... Even that great evil happened according to God's plan and purpose. It was not outside of God's control. And Peter, apparently meditating on the scripture, thinking about the scripture as they're praying, realizes that there's something that needs to be done. Judas's place needs to be filled with another person. He quotes Psalm 69, verse 25, in verse 20 of our passage here. He says, It is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. Now, often when we're in the New Testament and we see a quote from the Old Testament, it feels like somebody just stuck their hand in a bag of random quotations and pulled one out and said, that sounds like we could apply that to Judas or you know, whoever we may be talking about at the time. But if you go back and look at the bigger picture, it becomes clear that this is, the Old Testament is not a, a grab bag of potential prophecies. Right? But there are patterns that are fulfilled. They're established in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New through Jesus and what happened with Jesus. So, for example, in Psalm 69, some of what Peter doesn't quote here, 
But that helps us understand why this passage is fitting to describe Judas and what happened with Judas. In in Psalm 69 verse 4, for example, it says, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. That was true of David. And from David comes the Messiah, Jesus. And that was more true of Jesus than it was of David. There were many who hated Jesus without a cause. It's more true of Jesus than David because David did do some things, right, that people could be justifiably upset with him about. Jesus never did. Psalm 69 verse 9 is another passage that actually gets quoted in the New Testament um, in another place that's fulfilled in Jesus. It says, zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Psalm 69, 21, perhaps the most uh, clear one for us. is It says, they gave me poison for food and for my thirst. They gave me sour wine to drink. So what's going on here is David experienced, though he was... Uh, on, on the whole, a righteous man following God, he experienced animosity, hatred, persecution, people even trying to put him to death. And that pattern of God's righteous anointed one being persecuted, uh, even to the point of death, by the wicked, that pattern was fulfilled ultimately in Judas opposing, hating, and seeking the death of Jesus, the ultimate righteous one, the son of David, who's also the son of God. So when Peter quotes that passage, right, that it makes sense that this would apply to Judas because Judas did to Jesus the kind of things that others did to David and, again, fulfills the pattern in that way. So the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, though it is one of the darkest moments in all of Scripture, was not outside of God's control. It was fulfilling God's word. Fulfilling a pattern that God established in the life of David, that he recorded through David by the Holy Spirit. Again, it doesn't make Judas' actions any less wicked. It does not remove one ounce of his accountability. But it does give us comfort to know that it was not outside of God's control. Because if it was, how would that change the way Peter and the other disciples were responding? If they thought, wait a minute, the Messiah wasn't supposed to die? That was not God's plan? Now what are we going to do? Right? It totally changes the whole story. Instead, they take comfort knowing, okay, we didn't see this coming, but Jesus did. We were caught off guard by this. We shouldn't have been. God said it was going to happen in the scripture. It was wicked. It was evil. But it had to happen. And so if that was not outside of God's control, then that means the universe is not off the rails. What happened to Jesus is exactly what God planned to happen. And so now, how does God want us to move forward? What do we do next? So Peter quotes another passage of Scripture in verse 20. Excuse me. He says, uh, now he's quoting Psalm 109, which says, let another take his office. So this is another psalm where it's clear the pattern that's being established 
Um, it says, wicked and deceitful mouths. Thanks, bud. Excuse me. <clears throat> wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Again, it's not hard to see how that is fulfilled in what Jesus experienced. And so likewise, when Peter quotes from another verse, let another take his office, that is the one who um, betrayed Jesus, who betrayed God's righteous one, his place is now empty and needs to be filled. So who qualifies? Well, Peter gives the, the list of qualifications in verses 21 to 23, or 21 to 22, and then they tell us who qualifies in verse 23. An apostle can't be just anyone, right? I mean, anyone can be a disciple, but not just anyone can be an apostle. And Judas was one of those 12 handpicked by Jesus. And they have a particular task that they have been given. Their main job, and we're going to see this all through the book of Acts, their main job is to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus. They are to go into the world and say, not just, we heard, but we saw, we witnessed, we know that Jesus is alive. So Peter says, here's... Here's the kind of person we've got to choose from. It's got to be somebody who's been with us the whole time Jesus was here. From the time he was baptized by John in the Jordan all the way to his resurrection. It's got to be somebody who saw all of that, right? Uh, And there's a particular reason why. At the end of verse 22, he says, One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So it has to be somebody who saw, who was there, who was a witness. And so they put, they put forward two men who meet those qualifications. But here's something else about who qualifies to be an apostle. You don't get to pick yourself. You don't get to nominate yourself. Who picked the 12? Jesus did. So who's going to pick the 12th man, right, to take... Judas's place. Well, not even Peter gets to choose that person. God has to choose that person. And so what they do is once again they pray and they cast lots. Now that's something that we see normally in the Old Testament. We don't see it much in the New Testament. In fact, this is the last place it occurs in the New Testament. It's a little bit like um, like rolling dice. It's a way. So it's in the book of Jonah, right? When Jonah's on this boat and all the sailors are afraid they're going to die because there's this terrible storm that's come against them. They're trying to figure out who brought this mess on us. Who is some God out there trying to destroy? And so they cast lots and the lots land on Jonah. And Jonah's like, yeah, it is me. Throw me over. It's me. Um, We also see it in the book of Joshua. That's how some of the promised land was divided up and assigned to certain tribes was they cast lots. So it's a way that God could speak uh, to his people, and the apostles recognized that. And so they used that method, and through the casting of lots, God chose 
Matthias, who took the place of Judas to fill out the 12 apostles. Now, this is perhaps a good place to say that not everything that happens in the book of Acts is something that we are encouraged to do. Right? So don't go home and go, okay, good. Now I know how to figure out the answer to that question I've been wrestling with. Get out the dice and start praying. You know, that's not what it's saying. In general, the book of Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. Right? So your doctor can give you a prescription, and he's saying, do this, take this. But he can also just tell you a story about something that happened. He's not saying go home and do that. Right? There's a difference. So the book of Acts is telling us what happened. It's not always saying, go and do likewise. Right? So don't go home and cast lots. Like I said, there's, there's no example of that, again, anywhere in Scripture after this moment. I think that's significant. It's not something we are called to imitate, though it is something they were allowed to do at the time. Now here's how we draw all this together. While the disciples were waiting, and that's what they were doing, just like Jesus told them to, while they were waiting, they knew exactly what to do. So if you're waiting, you're in a season of waiting, and you're saying, I don't know what to do. Here's what we can do. They prayed. They remembered that God is in control no matter what is going on, no matter what has happened. They based their actions on Scripture. They not only prayed, they meditated on God's Word, and when they found something there that they believed they were supposed to act on, they did it. They acted on Scripture. And they sought God's will. They didn't try to take matters into their own hands. They asked God to direct their steps, to direct their choice, to make known what He wanted them to do. And they knew what their primary mission was. Uh, Peter reveals this in the qualifications he gives for whoever's going to take Judas's place. They, he knew what their primary mission was. Their primary mission was to bear witness before the world to the truth that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, in all those ways, we too can be active and at work as we wait, like they did, on the Lord. Let's pray.